Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. So, for those of you that have been with us, uh, we have been in a series um, called The Matriarchs. Over the last several weeks, we have been uh, looking at uh, the line of Jesus, and in particular, uh, we've been in Matthew 1, looking at uh, his genealogy and the women that are in the line of Jesus. Uh, and today we come to the next woman named Bathsheba, or as she's described here in, uh, in uh, Matthew 1, as Uriah's wife. Uh, what we're going to see is through her story, and uh, through how her story intersects with King David's story, we're going to see some pretty confronting things. In particular, what we're going to see is, we're going to see first our capacity for sin. Second, we're going to see the consequence of our sin. And then finally, we're going to see the ultimate death of sin. Each of which, if we have ears to hear, actually confronts us in really profound and meaningful ways. So, let's take a look at those three things. First, our capacity for sin. Uh, we need to uh, begin by addressing um, the fact that in Matthew's genealogy, he doesn't address this woman as Bathsheba by name. Instead, he calls her Uriah's wife. Now, for us modern New Yorkers, that probably seems really offensive. Uh, she has a name. Why not use her name? Who wants to be immortalized in Scripture as the wife of someone else as opposed to uh, being their own person? Well, as we've said throughout this series, uh, when the Bible speaks of something in a particular kind of way, there's a reason. And the reason Bathsheba is called Uriah's wife is to ensure that we are abundantly clear about her story. It might not seem like it at first, but calling her that actually honors her story in a way that might get missed if she was described in any other way. So with that in mind, what is this story? What's the full context? We heard uh, much of it just uh, read to us. But let's consider a little bit about Bathsheba's story. And let's start by looking at her husband, Uriah. It is worth noting that Uriah uh, was a soldier, uh, but he wasn't just a mere soldier, he wasn't just any soldier in the army, but rather we read elsewhere uh, that he was known as one of King David's mighty men. These were deeply committed men to David uh, and his kingship, and they vowed to protect him. So Uriah was a man who was deeply, deeply loyal to David. But as a good soldier, uh, he was off to war while David stayed home during this season. Now David, up until this point, King David has largely been a commendable figure. He's been a great warrior. He killed Goliath and saved his people. Uh, he was a great song and psalm writer, which we read about throughout the Bible. He was also, as we see in Psalm 119, he was also a man who loved the law of God. In fact, he would stay up at night just dreaming about the, the wonders of the law of God. And then in 1 Samuel, we're also told he's the only person in all of Scripture who is referred to as a man after God's own heart. That man, okay, this commendable figure, one evening, though, decided to go up from his bed and walk around on the roof of the palace 
And when he does, he sees Bathsheba bathing. We're told that she's very beautiful. He desires her. And he sends servants to go get her and bring her back. And when she is brought back to him, he has sex with her, which then results in pregnancy. Now, there are a couple of things. We'll pause for a moment and address a couple of things that we see in this passage. First, I want to address uh, some of the complexities uh, that exist within the passage. Specifically, we need to address the nature of this sexual encounter. Because I want us to be clear about what the Bible does and does not say about this encounter. Because there are different perspectives on what exactly is taking place here. There are some who read the story, and interestingly, they place some of the blame for this encounter on Bathsheba. Uh, so there are those who would say that she was bathing on the roof, on the roof uh, in an attempt to get David's attention. And though David should have resisted, Bathsheba is partially the blame for her seduction. I will say, of all the possibilities, this one is the most, by far, the most far-fetched for me. The reason being is that, number one, as we read this story, it seems as though David pretty randomly decides to get up and just take a stroll out on his roof. There's no indication that she knew that this would happen. Plus, she's bathing at night, an appropriate time to do so in modesty. But the other thing that we see is that every single time this incident comes up throughout the rest of 2 Samuel, full and complete blame is placed on David. The only actions that we're told about from Bathsheba's perspective is her compliance with his orders. So, no. It is very, very unlikely that Bathsheba attempted to seduce David and that she has any blame in the story. But then there's others who would read the story as simply a, a mutual desirous act engaged by two consenting adults. But again, nothing about this passage indicates that there was any mutuality in this act. Again, the only action taking place from Bathsheba's perspective is her submitting to the king's request. Which brings me to what I think is the most convincing explanation, which is that David, King David, the man after God's own heart, the one who loved the law of God, here is a sexual predator. While there's no indication that David was violent, and there are stories in the Old Testament where violent sexual abuse occurs, and the Bible is clear when that violence takes place, David here absolutely abused his power as king. And he became a sexual predator against a woman who had no recourse to resist or to say no. By every typical measure of sexual predation, David's action left her with no choice but to submit. And we can be confident of this, because when later on, when Nathan, the prophet Nathan, comes and confronts David, Nathan uses an analogy of a story of a rich and powerful man who becomes a predator, using his power to take what he wants from a poor man. David abused his power and became a sexual predator against a vulnerable woman. But of course, the depravity does not stop there. It continues. When David learns that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child, he devises a plan. And he attempts to uh, bring, what he does is he brings Uriah back from battle uh, and sends Uriah home to go be with his wife, hoping that after having been gone uh, off of the battlefield, 
he would come back and he would sleep with his wife, and as a result, assume that the child that she's carrying is his. But when Uriah returns from battle, remember, he is a deeply, deeply loyal man. And he cannot fathom enjoying the pleasures and comforts of home while his fellow soldiers are still off fighting. And so he refuses to go home. So because of his deep loyalty, David now is forced to concoct another plan. A plan that is going to now put Uriah's life in danger. What he does is he demands that Uriah be sent to the front lines and abandoned there, thus ensuring that Uriah would die in battle. So again, David, the man after God's own heart, is now a sexual predator, he's a liar, and now he's a murderer. And I recap this story, I put it back in front of us again, because there's actually a lot that we can learn about sin and how it works here in this story. Because it's so easy for us to distance ourselves from such grievous sin. It's so easy for us to look at what David is doing and say, oh, I would never be that kind of person who would do such things. But the reality is, is that David produced fruit from soil in which too often we also are planted. David was one of the most pious and most committed men to the law of God, and yet we're seeing here that he has fallen so far. And if the only person ever called the man after God's own heart could fall so far, what in the world makes us think we too cannot similarly fall? And this is one of the major failures of modernity today. In our pursuits of developing self-esteem and self-love and self-care, none of which are necessarily bad things, we've lost the belief that we are all capable of the worst kinds of depravities. And that we must, uh, we've lost the sense that we need to guard against such things in order that we keep ourselves from falling into such failures. So often, we do not believe that we can become David. And there are a few things on that that I need to point out. First, there are uh, some biblical commentators who argue that verse 1 of our passage actually speaks to David's state of mind. Specifically, they point out that the author makes mention of the season that they find themselves in. That the season was uh, a season when kings went to battle, but that David decided not to go, as would have been expected of him. And what these commentators note is that the honorable David would have uh, been out there fighting, but that what we're seeing here is that there's a lack, this, this lack of his presence on the battlefield is actually reflecting his waning Honor, that there's this, there's this pattern going on in David where he's no longer pursuing that which is honorable. And as a result, it's evidenced in his sin. Now, I will say that that is a little bit of a debated point as to whether or not he should have been out on the battlefield. But it does bring up a reality that is absolutely true. Specifically, grievous sin often results from a long developing lack of honorable conduct and living. Meaning, becoming a sexual predator, a liar, a murderer, does not just happen one day. 
It is a slow fade. It's an accumulating series of smaller failures that end up leading to more egregious failures. For example, sexual predation often starts with a love of power and the belief that one deserves what one desires before it ever becomes rape. An affair often starts in the mind, a mind willing to dwell on lustful thoughts before it ever becomes a physical act. Embezzlement or extortion often start as seemingly inconsequential frauds or constant little gray areas before they become full-blown schemes. Murder is often anger or resentment before it leads to death. They are often consequences of a longer pattern. Grievous sin is almost always rooted in a pattern of dishonorable conduct. And when we allow those patterns to exist, when we do not have the safeguards against what might seem harmless now, when we lack the integrity to address the problem as a seed before it becomes a whole tree, it's just a matter of time. It can be a matter of time before we too take a seemingly innocent stroll on a roof late one night and find ourselves devolving into David here in 2 Samuel 2. Now, there is another interesting case study of something similar happening back in uh, Genesis 4. If you remember, uh, back in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, uh, they are both bringing offerings to the Lord. What we see there is that the Lord accepts Abel's offering but rejects Cain's, and as a result, we are told in verse 5 of chapter 4 that Cain was very angry and that his face was downcast. Cain was full of, of anger and resentment, and he allowed that anger and resentment to pervade his mind. And in response, if you remember, the Lord comes to Cain and he warns Cain, and he basically says, listen, you better get a hold of your anger because... Sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. But then what we see in the, the very next verse, we're told that Cain does not do this. He does not rule over this anger and resentment that had become such a part of him. And as a result, that anger and resentment then turns to murder. And he kills his brother. Now Cain told, oh, chose not to do that which was honorable. Once again, it led to grievous sin. David and Cain are both examples of what happens when we don't take sin seriously. The sin that is crouching at our door, wanting to devour us. And I actually find that we tend to not take sin seriously in one of two ways. I would imagine that most of us fall into one of these two categories. Either we don't take our sin seriously enough because we're self-righteous, or we don't take our sins seriously enough because we're too self-autonomous. Okay. I'm explain to you what I mean. For those of us here, maybe you fall into the self-righteousness camp. Usually the way this is going to play out for us is us saying something like, I am not one of those people. I would never do one of fall into that kind of sin. And so we assume ourselves to be too righteous to ever fall into such things. And as a result... We don't take our sins seriously enough. But a truly righteous person knows that they could absolutely become the worst version of themselves if small sin is not addressed 
or if proper guardrails are not placed to ensure that we don't happen to walk out onto that balcony and fall into a perfectly set trap that we've laid for ourselves. If we aren't clear about that, sin is crouching at our door, waiting to devour us. And so for some of us, we don't take ourselves our sins seriously enough because we think ourselves too righteous. But then there's another way that we can also fail to take sin seriously, which is to be too self-autonomous. And we end up with the same problem. Meaning, self-righteous people have a framework for morality, usually. There's some kind of standard that they're judging themselves up against. But those who overemphasize their freedom from the restraints of maybe religious morality or restraints of standards outside of their own making, for those of us that fall into that camp, we too are setting ourselves up for the possibility of egregious failure. Because sure, right now, we might think that we have things under control. But what keeps us from those egregious actions? Right? If our own sense of morality is all there is, don't be surprised when you find yourself justifying things that you never would have thought you'd ever justify. And the reason being is that sin is crouching at our door, desiring to devour us. Now, all that said, that's not to say that we're going to end up murderous liars, but the point is simply that we all have the capacity to do so. And if you don't think that is true, I would contend that you do not have a proper understanding of how sin works, nor do you have a proper view of yourself. We are all capable of the kinds of things that we're seeing David do here in this passage. But not only do we see here in this passage our capacity for sin, but we also see the consequences of it. And there's something to learn from those consequences as well. Uh, the story continues to unfold. Um, as you may know, David has now, he's had Uriah killed. He eventually would marry Bathsheba. And the chapter kind of ends pretty ominously with it simply saying, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And as a result, uh, what God does is send Nathan to confront David. Nathan ends up telling a story of a rich man who unjustly steals from a poor man by taking from the poor man. And interestingly, David, when he hears of this injustice, he demands that the rich man be brought to him in order to be punished. And, and in one of the most dramatic scenes of the whole Bible, you have Nathan say, you are the man. Nathan then proceeds to tell David the consequences that are to come. And there would be consequences that were now to come to David. We're told, David uh, we're told that Nathan tells David that the house of David would be essentially thrown into chaos as a result of his failures as a king, uh, as a father, as a husband. If you know David's story, David's family becomes an absolute total disaster. I can't get into all the details now, but David's violence and his sexual perversions would get magnified by his sons who become rapists and murderers and engage in egregious levels of polygamy and idolatry. The whole family ends up a complete disaster. And interestingly, though David repents, you can see the genuineness of his repentance not only in the passage, but later on in Psalm 51, which we'll look at in a moment. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 of our passage tells us that the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but 
Because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. In a moment, I want to consider what is meant by the Lord has taken away your sin and you are not going to die. But what I first want to do is I want to consider that but in verse 14. Why? It's because that but reminds us that though the Lord has forgiven David, there still remains consequences to David's sin. In a moment, we're going to see how God does not reject David because of David's repentance. But David sees his family go into absolute chaos. And I think this is important to name because there are instances where we sin against others or where others sin against us. And as a result, there will be long-term consequences that maybe take life and produce absolute chaos. And when it comes to consequences, there are, I think, maybe two errors that we tend to fall in when we think about the consequences that come as a result of sin. Two errors that I think when we attempt to try and envision some measure of restoration or redemption or some good that comes out of even broken, sinful situations, two errors that I think we could fall into. And I think they're important for us to address. One error is that when uh, we are sinned against, some might actually be too quick to cancel and cut people out by condemning them, never giving them a chance for redemption. We actually don't see that here. What we actually see is God not canceling David and cutting him out immediately. He gives him opportunity for redemption. And I think one error that we can make is when there has been some kind of sin against us, there's absolutely no room that we give for possibilities of redemption. But I think the other error that we can fall into is actually the exact opposite one, which is that because we desire to see some kind of redemption, we desire to see some kind of uh, restoration, we're too quick to pursue the removal of consequences of sin in an attempt to experience that restoration. Let me say a little bit more about both of those. You know, some of us here, you have been impacted by abusers or manipulators or liars or more that you have been sinned against. And one error might be to write people off, refuse to forgive them, and allow resentment and anger toward them consume you. David's story here reminds us that forgiveness is possible and that even genuine repentance is possible. And so as a result, we need to at least be willing to have an open mind to thinking about or hearing what redemption and restoration and repentance might look like. But the other error could be that with a desire for restoration, we might, real, might not realize that even when there is forgiveness, consequences might still remain and might still have to remain. And what I mean is that if, if someone sins against us and they are genuinely repentant, we should rejoice in their willingness to deal with their sin. Praise God for their desire to repent. But that does not necessarily mean that there can be relationship that is fully restored, that trust will ever exist again, or that brokenness will not remain, or that ongoing consequences will not be necessary. And I draw this out because David was forgiven, but there are nonetheless consequences 
And it's important for us to be able to hold those things in tension. And I want to expand this out, maybe even just beyond some of the, the grievousness of David's types of sin that we're seeing here. Because all sin has the opportunity to see redemption and restoration come because we serve a merciful God. But we must not be deceived into believing that because he is merciful, there will not be consequences that remain. Maybe consequences that will remain for the entirety of our lives. And here's why I draw this out. If we don't understand that there will be consequences for our sin, even if there's a desire to see redemption and restoration, if we don't recognize that that's the case, then we will stop looking for ways that we are able to honor God even in the midst of those consequences. And our inability to be able to honor God in the midst of those consequences is yet another failure that can quickly devolve into new patterns that can easily create new scenarios of brokenness. David is forgiven. And I hope that we will see that there is restoration that can come. But even in the midst of the promises of God to David, there's still consequences. Consequences for him that reverberate for generations. And I bring this up because sin is that powerful. Sin is that destructive. And sin is always crouching at our door. And back to the first point, if we don't take it seriously, it desires to devour us. So this is why. We can't just leave this here. Something needs to be done to deal with that sin that's crouching at the door. Because we all have the capacity to fall in ways that we never could imagine. We all eventually, at some point, are going to experience the consequences that come as a result of sin that exists in us and around us. But the hope that comes this is where we get to see the opportunities for redemption. The hope that comes is that there's actually a death of that sin crouching in our door. If we would have eyes to see the hope that we see in the passage. Lastly, where do we see that death of sin? So we just spent a lot of time talking about David. Of course, he's vital to the story. But our whole series, right, this whole, the whole point of this series is actually to have our eyes on the women in Jesus' line. And of course, here woman in, in our passage is Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and the importance of her inclusion in Matthew. Uh, we didn't have this in our reading, but we're told that Bathsheba, she, she grieves at the loss of her husband. Of course she would. But by all accounts, Uriah was an upstanding, a deeply loyal man, likely a, a loving husband. And so, yes, there's deep grief that she experiences at the death of her husband. And now that her husband is gone, she's left with no choice but to enter the home of David. The man, in many ways, uh, who has been the exact opposite of her husband. She is now, you know, you can read about this throughout David's uh, story, but she's now essentially one of at least eight wives that David has. Uh, we're told earlier in 2 Samuel that he took concubines and wives, which gives us an indication that we don't actually know how many. She's now one of them. But because God is faithful and sovereign, we see something truly redemptive come through her story. Because God is faithful and sovereign, no evil of any human can thwart his plans. And so he stays true to his covenant that through David, uh, though he's going to experience serious consequences for his sin, 
that there is forgiveness and eventual redemption to come. And if we look at Matthew 1, verse 6, we start to see that redemption. It says, And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon would be the son through whom the line of Abraham would continue. The promises of God made all the way back to Abraham would continue through Solomon. Solomon would be the one through whom the Redeemer would come. Solomon is one of the fathers of Jesus. And Solomon was not the son of one of the untold number of wives or concubines of David. Rather, Solomon is the son of Bathsheba. God chooses the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, to bring forth the Redeemer. God chooses to use this abused and grief-stricken woman to bring redemption to the world. He uses her story as a glimpse into the restoration that he is accomplishing. And in particular, gives us a glimpse of the defeat of sin, the death of sin that is to come. And it's a reminder that God does not honor the powerful who take what they want, but he exalts those who are weak, those who are abused, those who are unseen, those who maybe at times feel like just one of many. Unimportant. God sees those people that the world might think little of and lifts their head and exalts them. And Bathsheba is yet another example of God lifting the head of the downtrodden, lifting the head of the grieved and the broken, taking a horrifically sinful situation and bringing redemption through it. This is the way the God of the Bible works. And even in David, I find fascinating that even David, he came to his own realization of his need for repentance, his own realization of needing to recognize and acknowledge his weakness. God works through weakness. I'm convinced David is still part of this entire story because of Psalm 51. If you know Psalm 51, it's a, it's a psalm that he, it's a prayer that he prays, a prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. That entire psalm is worth reading, I won't read it right now, but he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. It's David's genuine recognition of his own need for grace, his own need to acknowledge his weakness, to acknowledge his sin. And it's that kind of repentance that keeps David as part of the story. Despite the consequences that he experiences, there's still forgiveness as a result. But God exalts Bathsheba by bringing her into the lineage of Jesus, because in the end, Jesus is the only one who's going to crush the head of that predator that's crouching at every one of our doors. And Bathsheba's story reminds us that the way we experience salvation is to recognize our own need for salvation to recognize our weakness, to recognize our own brokenness. Because some of us here, we are Davids, who are on the verge of walking out on the balcony, about to be consumed by a predator of our own making. Realize you need salvation. And turn to the one who will crush the head of that predator. So that even if we do experience the consequences of sin, we still learn that God desires 
to meet us in our brokenness and bring forgiveness and restoration. But some of us here, we're also probably more, maybe we feel more like Bathsheba. We've been beaten down by the sins of others, not to mention having to deal with our own sin that's crouching at our door. Realize that you too are in need of salvation. And turn to the one who lifts the head of the broken, who crushes the head of sin. Bring redemption even through broken circumstances that we might live through. I'll say this final thing that, like Bathsheba, we might not fully realize the extent to which redemption is going to come. Like she could not possibly have fathomed what God was going to do generations later through her work. But nonetheless, trust that He is constantly at work. Trust that nothing will thwart His purposes. Trust that Jesus. A child from Bathsheba will have total victory over sin, crushing the predator at our door. It will bring the redemption that we all need as we trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. We thank you for how confronting this story is. Thank you for the reminder that we are far more sinful, far more capable of sin than we would ever want to admit. But that, Lord, because of your grace and the work of your Spirit, Lord, you are drawing us to yourself, leading us to lay down those things that might consume us. That as we come in confession and repentance before you, Lord, you're faithful to meet us there. Lord, we also thank you that you're a God who lifts the head of the downtrodden. We thank you that you are the one who is able to take the most egregious situations and use them for your glory. We thank you for the story of Bathsheba, an abused woman with no recourse. We thank you for her story and the reminder that you see her. You see Bathsheba's, and you meet Bathsheba's in their pain, trusting, Lord, that you will bring redemption, restoration, even through pain. Give us hope for the coming day when Jesus will return. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.